You're listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalent. Tune in to hear thought leaders, operators, and visionaries share their expertise, lessons learned, and best practices for how to prepare for the rapidly changing world of work. Now, let's get Radically Agile. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Kate Gulliver, the Global Head of Talent at Wayfair. Uh, Welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me, Rich. Happy to be here. So, you know, Kate, before we actually dive in and talk a little bit about about the kinds of things you're doing at Wayfair, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit more about Wayfair? I mean, we're based in Boston, and so I'm I'm pretty familiar with with Wayfair. I see it as one of the fastest growing uh, and most successful startups in in Boston. But why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what you're up to uh, with Wayfair? Sure. So Wayfair is one of the largest uh, e-commerce platforms exclusively focused on home decor and furnishing. Um, That means we sell everything from your bedside table, the lamp that goes on that bedside table, to your bed, to the covers that go on that bed. So a very wide range of products, but everything is, is intended for the home. We are a global operation. We're based in Boston, of course, as you mentioned. That's our headquarters, but um, we sell in the U.S., Canada, Germany, and the U.K. Um, we currently have a little over 10,000 employees, and that includes folks that are um, you know, based here in corporate that are engineers, um, all the way um, to you know, frontline support in our call centers and our warehouses. Um, the company's been around since 2002, but we rebranded as Wayfair in 2011, and we IPO'd in the fall of 2014. Got it. It's quite a, quite, quite a journey. Um, you know, I can imagine that in a company that's growing that quickly and, and changing a fair amount, that you probably experienced some of that change and evolution even in your own role at the company. Tell us a little bit more about what you yourself or what you're doing at, at Wayfair and your responsibilities at the company. Sure. So my current role is uh, leading global talent. Um, and for us, uh, that is everything to do with the human capital needs for our, you know, over 10,000 employees. So that's um, full life cycle from uh, sourcing and initially identifying those potential employees um, all the way through to alumni status. That includes compensation. It includes career development and management. It includes engagement. Um, and it includes, of course, reviews and calibration as part of that. I say my current role because I actually started at the company in a different role, and I think my stories pretty well aligned with how Wayfair broadly thinks about talent. I originally joined the company um, a little under five years ago in our finance team actually to run our IPO. Um, my background is as a private equity investor. I was intrigued by the, um, by, frankly, by the sort of structure of the company and the opportunity. And I, I came in um, for that role and moved into the talent world um, about two and a half years ago. Got it. Well, talk about, talk about, uh, being agile, which is of course the subject <laughs> of our agile podcast, yeah. sounds like you've been pretty pretty agile in your own career at 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 Wayfair, and good for the company to create an environment where um, where you felt comfortable comfortable doing that. Let's and I, I want to come back to that because I suspect culture is a big part of the reason why you're able to move like you did at the company. But before we get there. Let's let's stay on on your current focus and and talk a little bit about the talent the talent management human capital management role and function at the company. You know what what we've what we've seen from large enterprise and and other types of customers is that the nature of 
human capital management is is really changing pretty significantly. Part of its technology, part of its demographic, part of its lots of pressures on business. What's your own perspective on you know the, how the the role of human capital management as a function? How has that evolved in your eyes? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. It actually sort of dovetails with what attracted me to the role in the first place. I, I totally agree with you that the, the world of talent, um, human capital management, whatever you know, language people, officer roles, whatever language you want to use for it, um, have evolved quite significantly, I would say, in the past you know, 15 to 20 years. And I, th I think it really began with the large tech companies. So Google was probably one of the first um, companies with, under Laszlo Block, their famed CHRO, um, to start thinking about talent in a different way. And, and that was really by necessity, right? Um, they had to hire a ton of really great engineers at a time when there were a lot of other companies that wanted to hire, um, you know, hundreds and thousands of really great engineers. And in business, you always, you innovate where and when you need to. And that was a time where talent needed to be innovated because how to attract and retain people when um, employees were getting increasingly comfortable with fluidity, I think was not, not a way that companies had really thought about their workforce before. Um, I think the, so, so one, it was, you know, we need to get this this great talent on board. We need to retain them. This is now a group of people who actually are very comfortable moving around. Individuals no longer think of careers for their entire, you know, their entire sort of working lifespan, but in chunks and segments, and they expect to move jobs. Um, I think the other, you know, the other big shift that we've seen in talent is if you look at tech companies in particular, our assets are usually our human capital assets, right? So unlike, you know, the maybe large industrial companies of the early 20th century, um, where most of the physical assets were plants and operations and balance sheet assets, here, a lot of our cost is actually in our human capital cost. Um, if you look at it, um, you know, sort of from a P&L perspective, it's been an increasingly growing part of most organizations' um, cost structures is their, their comp costs and all the associated costs around their employees, because those employees are the ones that are actually producing the IT and the value for, the, for that entity versus, you know, working in a manufacturing or assembly line. And that cost structure forces you to think about it in a different way, in the same way that you might think about your marketing costs or your operations costs. Um, and I think that's a new role for talent to play. So it's both, how do I, how do I understand the ROI of, you know, my people and my team and, and what they're producing and how do I treat that a little bit more like I would any of my other business lines? Um, and how do I also compete in a world um, that is increasingly fluid and comfortable with people moving across roles and across companies? So I, I think uh, we're, we're on a, a podcast recording, so you can't see it, but there's lots of head nodding on this end of the, of the speaker, um, because that's what you just laid out is, I think, entirely consistent with, with what we're hearing from, from the market. I, you know, you raise, so we, we refer to, or I guess I've, I've heard this from others, uh, the, the, a business first mindset for mm -hmm. the CHRO or for the talent function, uh, this business first mindset. And to me, a lot of what you were just describing is consistent with a business first mindset. What is the, what is the ROI of my people? Just like what is the ROI of my marketing costs? Is there, is there any example of, um, something that, that you've tried or that Wayfair has tried where, uh, you know, you, you've tried to develop some ROI measure 
to, to assess how you're doing on, on your human capital management front. Any tools that you've developed or tricks of the trade you can share with our audience because we're always excited to hear what people are doing in, in real life situations. So a, a fantastic question. And um, I think you're right. You, you call it like the, the business of talent or, or I always describe it as treating talent like a business function. Um, so treating it the same way that you, that you would these other functions, demanding um, the metrics um, and the analytics within talent that you would um, in, in other parts of your business. Um, so to totally agree with you there, I think calculating the ROI of an individual is obviously quite challenging and, and the, sure. um, the sort of delicate balance and talent is always you want to create process and structure that allows you to move quickly, but you also want to recognize that human beings are in fact human beings. Um, so as we try to think through it, what we try to think about are what are the metrics that we want to be tracking and reporting on in the talent world? And then within that, where are places that we think we can calculate ROI on the actions that our people are taking? Um, so one example of that in that pertains to actions that people take within talent itself um, is in interviewing. So we've hired um, thousands of people in the last year um, as, as our growth rate is really two things during that. One, we've continued to grow pretty dramatically, you know, roughly 40% year over year revenue growth in the last quarter. And two, we've inbounded um, or we've taken in, in-house a significant portion of our logistics infrastructure, which necessitates, um, you know, bringing more people on board. So our hiring yep. has, has been pretty dramatic. And as we looked into it, we were spending um, you know, a significant number of hours interviewing folks. Most data suggests that interviews are not that effective to begin with, um, and that you can actually usually make a determination in you know three to four hours of interviews. We were spending on average more than 10. So if you think about the cost of that, it's the cost of the resources of your company to, to do that interview. So that's the human capital time um, of my time, your time, whoever whoever's on the interview panel. Um, it's the cost, the opportunity cost of that individual's time in process. We know that we're less likely to close the longer that person's in process. Time kills all deals. Um, right. And right. then it's the, you know, the opportunity cost of, well, if we're not even being effective in getting the wrong person in the wrong role, um, you know, what is, what is the cost to us of that, of the sort of lost productivity of that individual? So we were able to measure and calculate actually, here's, you know, here's the amount of time that we spent on the interviews. Here's how much dollars that is from a compensation perspective for us. Here's what we think is a time and process, and therefore there's a lot of yield on, on attracting that person. So overall, it's costing us X, right? And yep. then we were able to say, we actually think that we can do these interviews in four hours. Here's what we should be probing on. Here's exactly what we want to look for in each interview. Um, but if we bring it down to four hours, here's both the time cost that we'll save to the organization, and here's um, both the, the sort of dollar and value cost, um, and prove the ROI on a specific action, which is a more efficient interview process. We then actually trained 2,000 people in the company within um, an eight-month time frame how to actually interview in this format um, and in wow. this way. Wow. And now what we're tracking is the effectiveness of that. So um, if, if we are now doing just these four-hour interviews and we're interviewing on certain aspects, over time, we should be able to track the performance of the people that came in through this, um, for this, you know, through this interview process we should be able to track where they're rated, how they perform, and are we seeing as high quality from a tighter process as we did from a longer process? That's, um, that's really amazing. The amount of effort, so that was one measurement. That was one ROI measurement, metric, uh, that you just described in a really helpful way. But think about all of the time and effort that it took just to put that in place. It took eight months to train thousands and thousands of 
employees and, you, and now you've done it and you've got the metric and it sounds it sounds like a really effective one so uh, congratulations to you guys but I can only imagine Wayfair moves so much faster than so many other companies how hard it would be at a differently structured business to do exactly what you just did uh, what you and the team were able to do at Wayfair so Kate thank you thank you for sharing that e example I think um, that's a great one for our listeners and, and one of the things that you you mentioned in that great uh, content was the importance of, of moving quickly. You, I think you said that uh, time kills all deals. And you know that reminds me of just something that we see a little bit more broadly applied at, at companies we're working with where we're hearing more and more that there is exceptional pressure on companies to move faster. And you know, move faster might mean move into a new market faster. It might mean figure out a competitive strategy versus a disruptive competitor faster. It can mean bring to a new product to market faster. It can mean all kinds of things. But I'm curious, at, at Wayfair, in, in your experience, well, why do you believe that speed is critical to success for businesses today? Sure. So the, the simple answer to me is technology. Um, and then you know, that, that applies across all industries. But to use retail, which is the space that we play in, if you think about how you maybe shopped 20 years ago, you went to um, the store that was down the street from you that had a physical, you know, an actual physical location, um, and they were advantaged just by having that physical location, right? Whether or not yep. they innovated or, um, you know, even if they offered the best price was a little bit secondary to their proximity. Um, but in e-commerce, physical location and that barrier to other entrants coming in or that natural sort of relationship that you have with the customer just by being physically located no longer matters. Anybody can come in at any time and put up a storefront. Anybody can send you an email um, and try to sort of outbound to you to get you or post an ad on Google to get you to come to their site. Um, and what that means for us is that if we are not constantly staying ahead of the curve, um, and we're not constantly innovating, offering a better product, a better mobile experience, um, a better price um, infrastructure, better loyalty program, we can easily lose you because there's nothing, there's, there's very little stickiness. Um, and I think that, you know, over time, ideally you build a brand that creates stickiness, and we believe that's what we've done, you know, over the 16 years that Wayfair has been around. Um, but I think in internet, what you see is that there's a, there's a much easier ability for um, someone to innovate and, and, um, and create a newness that you could not have in a physical sort of physical retail dominated landscape. Um, and so what we e-commerce is that it's both a first mover advantage, right? Because you want to be the first brand that's out there and you have to be continually innovating to stay relevant um, and to, you know, really deliver for your customer. Yeah, I, I think your space um, probably has felt this kind of pressure to move faster to fight off disruption than arguably than any other category. So I think your perspective is a particularly valuable one uh, for, for our audience. You, you, you mentioned the, the pressure to innovate and you know what, what is that like at, at Wayfair? Talk to us a little bit about what innovation looks like at, at your company. How, how do you guys how do you guys accelerate new ideas there? What do you do that you think is a little bit different than maybe what slower moving companies are doing? I, I think it's a great question. So I think it comes down to a few things. Um, one is it, it's deeply embedded in our value structure um, that, that innovation and risk taking 
um, are, are both cr critical parts of how we operate. So to illustrate that for you, um, we both interview people and then evaluate um, team members across four competencies, one of which is called innovation and results. Um, and that's for every employee at the company, um, from a you know, uh, mobile um, you know, engineer to a um, call center you know, frontline employee who's, who's answering your post-order questions. Um, and in all of those roles, we expect a certain level of innovation that, that looks differently in different roles. Um, but it's something that we talk about in the reviews for every single employee, and it's something that we probe on in the interviews. And then in our core values, um, there's several values that are sort of related to about how we innovate, one of which is, is um, the actual value is called we innovate better together. Um, and the idea there is that we work in a highly cross-functional environment. So um, I talked about a little bit about this on the, on the panel, um, but we are um, a highly matrixed structure. So generally, to get something done, you're working with people from multiple different teams. And part of the value in that is that it forces transparency, it forces collaboration, um, it also usually gets you to a better idea. Rarely is the first idea the best idea, but if you are approaching it from a um, marketing perspective and from an ops perspective and from a brand perspective, you're probably going to get farther than you would have if just um, you know, the lifestyle brand individual is leading. Um, and so when we say we innovate better together, what we mean is we want to work collaboratively to challenge these ideas. One of our other core values is we challenge to ensure excellence. We expect pushback. We expect failure. We're comfortable with that failure. Um, but what we really want is for you to go into the room, bat an idea around with your team, figure out a way to sort of get it to market, do that quickly, and then learn from that. Whether it's an epic failure or an, or an incredible success, there's likely some learning to be taken from that. Communicate that out to the org and then iterate and move on to the next piece. That's great. You know, the, the learn from failure piece um, that you mentioned, that is so hard at other companies. I think there's, um, you know, we are used to uh, holding ourselves to high standards and, and failure is not something that, uh, that many of the folks I'm sure that Wayfair is hiring are used to. How do you how do you instill that piece specifically? Um, like uh, encouraging people to take risks such that if they take thoughtful risks and it doesn't work out, they don't feel held to account. Anything, any specific tactics you guys do or that you yourself have done uh, that you can share? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because you're right, it is really hard. Um, and I think most of us, um, you know, we, we all want to perform well, right? Sure. Um, and I think particularly as the company has gotten larger, I think when we were smaller, the type of individual that wants to come work at a smaller startup generally has actually a fairly high appetite for risk um, and is usually quite comfortable with that. As we've grown larger and are more stable, um, you, you know, you, you attract, one of the great things is you attract a broader range of folks, a more diverse group of folks on many fronts, um, but it's not necessarily a group that is as high, you know, ha has as high risk appetite. So defending that, you know, cultural norm becomes much more um, important. And I think one of the best ways you do that is, is modeling it. Um, so part of that comes from talking with your own team about um, things that you tried that didn't work um, or things that you tried that were successful. But sharing those innovations, um, both with your team and across your org, and, and learning from them. Um, so in my, you know, my own world, one time we tried to 
pool recruiting resources um, across a variety of different teams because we were looking for a very specific profile and we thought it'd be more efficient if we created one channel. Um, it turned out um, it was more efficient from a sourcing perspective, but it was a lot less efficient um, when you tried to make that connection between the hiring manager and the candidate. Um, and so it didn't work, right? Um, and we had to yep. unwind it and, and we kept part of it, um, the sourcing part, which was more efficient, but we unwound the other part and we talked about it. We said, hey, we tried this, here's what we learned. We sent an email to everyone that had been involved, including you know, our business partners and the hiring managers. Um, said, here's what we learned, we're really excited about that. Um, but we also learned, you know, that we didn't have as tight a relationship as we wanted, and we wanted that one-to-one -one connection, and so we're going to go back to that in these four teams. Um, and talking about that publicly, I think gets people comfortable with, oh, everybody, you know, everyone's learning from these steps and these 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 mistakes, um, and the real value is in getting out there and trying something. Um, and so I, as leaders in the company, we both have to model it and, and share our own experiences with it. And we have to work with our teams to, you know, make sure that they're comfortable with it by saying, hey, it was really great that you did X. Here's the value that we saw from that. Here's what we should do differently next time. And make sure that it's not a, wow, we really screwed up here. Um, and by the <laughs> way, there are times we really screwed up. And, and you should say that, right? We all have times we really screwed up. That's okay. Um, but it's certainly most, most powerful when you, you know, identify what the key learnings are and, and actually take those away. That's right. I, I think those are that's a very, very good uh, lesson for, for folks to take away from one of the lessons to take away from this conversation, the power of modeling and the power of differentiating between actual screw ups and, you know, things that just good ideas that didn't work out or things that seemed like good ideas and didn't work out. That's important distinction. So as we're talking about tips and takeaways, I think, Kate, it might be a good place for us to, to start to, to wrap things up with our audience today. And, uh, you know, what you've described at Wayfair, um, candidly, it sounds, it, it has sounded so easy. Uh, you guys have figured a lot of things out. You have a spirit of experimentation. Your cultures are ingrained in how people act. Um, I suspect that it, it hasn't been always that easy for you guys, and it's certainly not easy for lots of other companies. So if, if in, your, in your parting words of wisdom for our Radically Agile podcast today, what are some, some tips or takeaways uh, you, might, you might pass along to the group? So uh, it's a great question because you're right. It hasn't, it's been fun um, and chaotic, but, but certainly not, not easy. And, and I would say one, one reminder is we've been at this, you know, I've personally been at the company for five years. The company's been around for 16 years. Right, so the company has been at this for a long time. Um, sure. From 2002 to, to, to 2011, it was um, it bootstrapped by the co-founders, um, and and that really provided a very you know sort of core foundation. I think deeply it held values um, and an operating model. Um, our two co-founders are, are at the company every day, are very present. Um, one of them is the CEO. One of them. Um, you know, has the tech side ultimately reporting up and doing the both co-chairman of the board. So, so I, I, I want to be, you know, clear that I think some of, some of this is the history of how, how Wayfair evolved. Um, but I think that, that the importance of leadership through staying true to those values and being clear about how they, how they articulate and speak about those values, um, even when they will be challenged at times, is incredibly important for um, sort of long-term operating success. Because there's probably a reason why you, you structure it in 
whatever way you structure it, right? There's, there's lots of pros and cons to all sorts of different operating models. Um, but there, there are reasons why you went down that path to begin with. And identifying what are those pieces are sort of core to who you are and what need to evolve as the organization changes are what I think mark a really great leader. Um, and on a, on a smaller level, you know, I always tell the, the directors that join my team, what's going to make you a great director here is this is an execution business. Every day you're going to have a zillion things to do. It's all about execution, but identifying what is noise um, and what you can sort of leave behind, what fires you should actually let burn and which ones actually matter and charting the course to sort of future long-term changes, that's what's going to, to be the hallmark of a really great leader. And I think that's the same when you think about developing talent, when you think about, you know, cultural values and norms and how you protect and defend them, because some of those things do need to evolve and some need to, to stay the same and stay the course. And the discernment between the two, what should stay and how do I defend that and what should evolve and how do I now speak about that, that's what really marks a you know sort of the strong leaders in our company. Um, and frankly, I think our CEO um, and our and our co-founder are both incredible at that, and they've set that example from the top. Well, that uh, those are great insights, Kate. Appreciate you sharing so so candidly about your experience at Wayfair and the team's experience at Wayfair. Then just more generally, in wrapping up, I want to tell you it's been a real pleasure uh, having you on the podcast today. Uh, I enjoyed meeting you a couple weeks back. It's great to be in the same startup ecosystem, technology ecosystem here in Boston with you and the Wayfair team. I should state I am a repeat Wayfair customer. I don't know if you checked oh, the record for getting on the podcast today. But, uh, but I am, and I, I love your business and your model. So look forward to, uh, to seeing you guys continue to succeed, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rich. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalan, the go-to podcast for interpreting the dramatic changes underway in the world of work. Please visit agileworkforce.com or email us at radical at gocatalan.com to join the conversation.